Well, good morning once again. It is so good to have you here today. Again, whether here in person or online, we are glad that you've decided to spend this Memorial Day weekend Sunday here at First Baptist Church worshiping with us. And we do trust that God will speak to you as you need to hear from him as we look at his word today. As we turn our attention to his word, I'd like to go to the Lord yet again in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. I thank you for the calling that you've placed on our lives. And God, I thank you that your kingdom is constantly expanding and advancing. I thank you that though we are unworthy, we are still invited to be members of your family, to be citizens in your kingdom. Lord, as we begin to, to dive into the book of Romans, I pray that you would help us to see where our true citizenship lies with you, Lord, that we are, in fact, strangers in a strange land, and that, Lord, we are called to a higher purpose, that we are called to a higher allegiance as we declare with our hearts and with our lives that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, speak to us in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next several weeks, and by several weeks I mean through the summer, we're going to be making our way through the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And Romans, as the name would suggest, was a book written to Roman Christians, uh, specifically in the capital of the empire. And I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between what the people of Rome were facing and what we ourselves face and some of the struggles and, and some of the tension that we deal with even now as American citizens. Roman citizens were a people of the empire. They were part of the most dominant superpower of the time and the most dominant superpower the, the world had ever known. The, the state, as the statement went, the, the sun never set on the Roman empire. These citizens benefited from unprecedented levels of peace and prosperity. They had access to life-altering technology. They had a long list of amazing rights and benefits as citizens. And as good as this was, it created an interesting tension for those that, that converted to Christianity in the first century and in the years that followed. They were, and we are, what theologian and Bible scholar John Stott called a people between two worlds. A people with, with feet in two different realities, two different kingdoms, with feet in, in our, our terrestrial, earthly kingdoms and, and civic responsibilities and, and relationships, but also a foot in the kingdom of heaven. People with two kingdom callings for their, two kingdoms calling for their allegiance. And while these two kingdoms for the Roman Empire weren't always at tension, it was inevitable that the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God would put them at times at points of decision of which king kingdom would take priority in their lives. And the book of Romans deals with, in a great many ways, this tension. And the book of Romans throughout is a calling to the people of God both those that had already converted and those that would, both Jews and Gentiles, to align our allegiances first and foremost under Jesus, the King of all kings. The, the proclamation that stands at the center of the book of Romans is that Jesus is Lord, that, that he is the authority of our, in our lives, that it is his word to which we will submit above all others. And again, we as Americans find ourselves oftentimes in a very similar situation. We are citizens of an empire even greater than that of the Romans. And if we're honest, we at times experience the tension of competing allegiances in our hearts and our minds. We need constant reminders who and whose we are. We need to remember, as John the Revelator wrote, our first love. 
we need to pledge our allegiance to Christ Jesus, our King, and to the expansion of the kingdom he's bringing about on earth as it is in heaven. If you would look at me, with me at the book of Romans, we'll be starting in chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1, and we're actually going to start in verse 8. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And it says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching of the gospel, gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware brothers and sisters that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented by from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had amongst the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. To shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with the women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they might do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you, pass judge, you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of kind, his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I am going to be incredibly candid and honest with you. God brought this passage and this book to mind several months ago. And this idea of pledging allegiance to Jesus above others, above all other allegiances, and to his word above others. And I have never been more nervous about preaching a series in my life. And I am almost certain that there are those on different sides of the political spectrum or ideology in this sanctuary right now 
that are going to be mad at me or upset about different reasons, but I want you to hear me right now. I apologize for nothing I am about to say. I am going to preach the word of God with conviction and clarity, and if you want to have a conversation with me about where, where we, we have divergences, let's have that conversation. And I say that with all humility and grace. But I am asking you to be patient with me this morning. And, and for those of you that pray during the service, pray for me right now. Pray for me. This is not easy. So let's look at this passage and consider what Paul is saying to the Romans and what God may be saying to us through his transcendent word today. First thing that jumps out at me actually comes from a little bit before where we started in the passage. And it's an important, it's an important message for us to Christians. It's one that I push early and often here at First Baptist Church. And it's one that I think we need reminded of early and often. Because the longer that we, that we are Christians, the more defensive we become of the church and Christianity. The first thing that I see in this text is this. That God's kingdom has come. And it is open to everyone. God's kingdom is, has come and it is open to everyone. I want us to look back right quick to where Paul starts in this text in verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was descended from David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul comes right out the gate with it. That, that, that there is one king in God's kingdom, and it is not me. It is not you. There is one authority that sits on the heavenly throne and rules over all powers and all principalities and all kingdoms and all governments. And he does not sit in Washington, D.C. His name, he is not a president. He is God Almighty. Jesus, the Lord. And we need to know our role in the kingdom of God. It is so easy for us to elevate ourselves beyond where we belong. And, and not just ourselves, but others. To forget ourselves, to forget our place, to, to forget how we should function in, in light of God's glory and his greatness. And I don't want us to miss where it starts. So, it's so easy for us to read a book like Romans and to read the introduction and, and to just gloss by it. This morning, I didn't even read it at the beginning. And truthfully, when my friend Mike Miller and I were breaking down the passages, we didn't have this in there because it oftentimes seems so inconsequential. But note where Paul starts. Paul starts by, by noting that he knows his role. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Paul. One of the greatest of the apostles. Now, I know that Paul says that he is the least of the apostles. But we all know that most of what we read in this here New Testament was written by whom? Paul. He's a pretty significant figure in the history of Christianity, is he not? I mean, most of the ways that we function and, and, and the form of our Christianity comes from the writings of Paul. He's pretty important. And here, this, this incredibly well-educated, incredibly wise, incredibly powerful apostle starts not with his position as the apostle, but his position under Jesus Christ. And Paul notes that he is a servant, and actually that word is incorrectly translated. The word there is a slave. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul understands something. That his place and his assignment is fundamentally the same as every other servant citizen in the kingdom of God. To share the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that's all of us. From, from, from me standing on the stage to you sitting in the pews to even those children that we had come up here on the stage. We helped them achieve this morning to some degree their calling in Jesus Christ in sharing and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that death has been put to the side and new life has come through the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit. 
And Paul goes from this, this beginning of, of laying, laying down his authority, but also lifting it up, and recognizing in humility who he is, to throwing out some things that would have been very controversial in the first century. Everything Paul says about Jesus Christ here in the first chapter of Rome, Romans and throughout the book of Romans could have and was often applied to Caesar in the imperial cult. You, you, you understand that the statement Jesus is Lord was not proprietarily first and foremost a Christian declaration. That Paul actually took the words of a declaration of the imperial cult which they, people were expected to go and stand in this cult, and they were to declare that Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is Lord. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. You can't do that anymore. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is the declaration. Th this, was, this was not only blasphemous in Roman culture, it was treasonous. These are words and these are statements that could have gotten Paul killed. Paul is standing firmly and making statements as a Roman citizen that could have, and let's be honest, often did got, get him arrested. But the statements go further. Paul proclaims that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is God Almighty. These are all things that the imperial cult would have said about Caesar. And they had temples that, that used versions of these phrases on their entryways as you would come in. The lines between religion and state in first century Rome and first century world were non-existent. The state was their church and membership was exclusive and expensive. To Roman citizens, the kingdom language that Paul is using was prevalent throughout their kingdom. And it would have been a big deal and would have carried very big implications for these new Roman Christians. Paul is creating a very clear contrast. And Paul, from the outset, is calling to them to reevaluate their understanding of whom they are and where their loyalties lie, first and foremost. And the struggle is real. I would argue and I would submit to you that even in our current situation as Americans, that struggle is real. Brothers and sisters, hear me. With all grace and compassion, our allegiance doesn't belong to any political party. Right or left, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or whatever you want to call yourself. Our allegiance doesn't belong to elected officials or candidates for political office. And while I love our nation and our flag, our first allegiance does not belong to these United States of America. As followers of Jesus, we are citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God. We are, as the Apostle Peter so famously said, strangers in a strange land. We are aliens. Again, as John Stott said, we are a people between two worlds. Our allegiance belongs to Jesus as we seek to serve his purposes in this world, sharing his gospel for eternal ends. How do we gain this citizenship in the kingdom of God? We, we noted that the kingdom is, is opened, has come and it's open to everyone. How does one gain citizenship in the kingdom of God? Well, our salvation and citizenship is established by faith and by faith alone. And Paul notes in verse 16 that he has no shame. I am not ashamed of proclaiming Jesus Christ and salvation by faith. In his shed blood. Why would Paul have to declare that? I mean, I, it's interesting to me because I started with a caveat at the beginning of this message. And, and I think this is Paul's caveat. I'm not ashamed of what I'm about to say to you. I don't, I don't make any apologies. What I am saying is countercultural. What I am saying goes against the grain of, of the expectation and what is being said in society. I understand that. But there is no need for shame. 
Paul had no shame in proclaiming Jesus Christ and salvation through his shed blood. That life came from death. Rome was built and maintained through political power and military might. In Rome, the phrase, might is right, was very, very much the rule of the day. That political, that the, these power of the Roman Empire was, was situated in the power of the ruling class in the Senate. And it was maintained by the force of the sword of the Roman legions. And here, and we know that even the Jews expected, right, that, that Jesus was going to come in and overthrow the kingdom of this world through physical force. That's why Peter's swinging swords and whacking people's ears off. Because they believed from beginning to end to the very moment that Christ ascended that they were going to, to bring about the kingdom of God through force and through military might. And Christ is like, slow down, that's not how it works. Over and over and over again, Jesus says throughout the gospel and lays out that his kingdom is going to come through countercultural means. That it's not going to come according to the, the way that the kingdoms of this world are established. And Jesus demonstrated his power and established his kingdom through sacrifice and service, not through the strength of a sword. And he continues to do so today. Paul is drawing out again the clear contrast between the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God. Salvation comes through faith. Salvation doesn't come through, through religious hoop jumping. It doesn't come through national power or ethnic identity. But through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. There is nothing that you can do and nothing that you are in and of yourself that can achieve salvation for you. Nothing. It is only by faith through the grace of God that we are saved. All of us. That the statement is true, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Salvation is a gift of God. We simply believe and receive it. And God lets us in. Verse 17. Paul says, For the gospel... For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This verse famously sparked the fire in the reformer Martin Luther that took the religious world and the, the world at large by storm and changed the way that we function even today. Might I submit to you that today we could use some of that that reformation spirit in our own hearts in our own context that we could use those reminders that turn us back to faith first and foremost in Jesus Christ as the saving means of God as the one who brings about his kingdom in this world God's kingdom has come and it's open to everyone second thing we see in this text is this that creation itself calls us to faith in the creator Creation itself calls us to faith in the creator. God has provided plenty of evidence of his existence and reason to seek and serve him. And we see in verses 17 and 18 that there are two conflicting and contrasting statements that are being made. That both God's righteousness and God's wrath have been and are being revealed. That God's righteousness and wrath have been or are being revealed. What does that mean? Well, the righteousness of God calls us to faith and faithfulness, right? Paul just said that. So what is the wrath of God doing? The wrath of God calls out our unbelief and our rebellion. When we read these texts, we, we, we read the righteousness of God and we understand this forward looking of that or the back looking, understanding that the righteousness comes through faith in Jesus, through looking at him. But we look at the wrath and we assume that that means that God is, is bringing about this massive destruction and punishment in the here and now. Well, clearly, I, I think that we can make the statement that we don't see that in, in the way that we would expect based upon the overwhelming flow of Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, righteousness and wrath in this context are more about divine expectation than immediate outcome. Righteousness and wrath are more about 
divine expectation than immediate outcome. That God has given us reason to seek him and submit to his rule and reign in worship and service. But we can, and often do, choose not to. Now I want to be clear about something. Wrath does not equal rage. Wrath does not equal rage. This is a a misnomer of of people within the church and without the church. That God is this, this vengeful, angry deity sitting in the heavenly realms watching for some sucker sinner to go just a little too far and to pick us off. I, I catch this a lot when people come into the church. They're like, oh, I better step, you better step to the side, Pastor. God better have good aim. I'm stepping in the church, so you might strike me down. That's not how God works. And, and shame on us for leading people to believe that that's how God works. That God is angrily sitting in heaven watching for us to, to pass that line between God's judgment and God's grace so that he can smack us, da- smack us down. Paul is not saying that, though. Paul is beginning to lay out what one commentator calls the anatomy of unbelief. He's explained the importance of faith, and now he's bringing about the issue of faith's absence. Now, I want to be clear about something. Wrath will eventually and ultimately lead to retribution if left unresolved. Brothers and sisters, hear me today. Heaven and hell are very real. And whether we are in or out, is completely contingent upon where we place our faith. Not not on what we've done, and we're going to see this in a minute, because we've all done more than enough to be kept out. But on where we place our faith. Are we placing it in ourselves or in other things, other created things in this world, other people, other items, other animals, other creatures, or are we, we placing our faith in the creator? Where we place our faith determines our eternal destiny. Humanity has a long history of rebelling against and attempting to replace God on the throne. We see that here in the text, that, God, that God's wrath is being revealed, that he's, giving, he's revealing his righteousness and his wrath, giving us reason, making plain to us who God is through the created order. It says, verse 24, since... The creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That creation itself reveals to us the truth of God's existence. The necessity of a creator is seen in the complexity of creation And then it says this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. We were created to worship, and when we fail to recognize the true God of the universe, we will worship something else. We create things to worship. This became very clear to me on on one trip to India. We went to India, and we were in this small village, and they were like, well, we want to take you out to the market today to do some shopping, which is a common thing. And so we go out to check out the market to see all of the different things. And as we made our way into the market, the very first place we came to was actually a very nice Western-looking shop, and meaning American, European. And, and when you looked inside these glass doors, you could see the, this man who had chisels in his hand and a hammer and was chiseling these incredibly intricate-looking carvings. It's like, we've got to go check this out, right? As Americans, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the, the handcrafted items. So we make our way into this, into this shop where this man is making these incredibly beautiful works of art. And we're looking, and there, there are these big elephants that I wish I could have, like, stuffed into my bag. It was huge. It was, like, this big, and, and it, it had all these detailed things in it. And there were monkeys, and, and, and there were all these different amazing depictions of animals and of course traveling home you've got to find something small so without thinking I walk over and I grab four or five of these little elephants which is even more amazing that that this big elephant was carved in really little elephants so I buy four I take four of these five of these little elephants I walk up to the front I place them in the counter the man asks for my money pay the money three other pastors walk up with me buy four or five of these little elephants and we make our way out of the shop 
We walk around for a little while, buy some stuff, and go back to the compound. We hadn't been there five or ten minutes, and, and one of our Indian guides came up to me and said, Hey, Pastor, can, can I ask you a question? I said, Absolutely, man. What, what's going on? He said, I, I, I don't mean to offend you, but I need to know, um, why did you buy idols today? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't buy any idols. What are you talking about? He's like, oh, no, yes, you did. You, you bought idols this, this afternoon when we were in the market. You bought five of them, as a matter of fact. I was like, where did I buy idols? And all of a sudden, it hit me that my five little elephants were what he was talking about. He's like, yeah, that man that was carving those things was carving idols. And, and people, there was a temple nearby, and people who come and worship at that temple, when they leave the temple, will come by these, these idols and will take them home and will put them on their mantle, and they were worshiping them. So I, I don't understand, why did you and the pastors, why did you buy these idols? I, I, there was no amount of American explaining that was going to get me out of this one. It, not my finest missionary moment. And for us, it doesn't compute because we don't worship animals in the same way. We don't worship the, the, the false gods in the American ethos are not the same as they are in the jungle of India. But brothers and sisters, allow me to assure you that we do have our idols. We do have things that are other than Jesus that replace him on the thrones of our hearts. And it, it's sin. Idolatry is sin. At its core, all sin is a form of idolatry. Sin demonstrates that we have chosen to honor and obey someone or something other than God Almighty. Our allegiance has been compromised. And our failure to seek and acknowledge God's greatness is most often an indication of our desire to do exactly what we want. What feels good to us, what seems right in our own hearts and minds. Dumb idols require much less of us than the eternal God of the universe. We may not have worshipped an animal, but we've opted for the path of wrath over righteousness in our lives. And if we're really honest, the creation we're most likely to put in God's place is ourselves. We serve what we think will best serve us. And even a basic understanding of the created order provides mountains of evidence to substantiate the existence of a creator. To draw our attention to the heavens and to, to cause us to go on a search for understanding who the creator is and what he expects of us. Creation reminds us of our smallness and should inspire us to seek the source and to submit to his rule and reign. But we see something play out throughout this text. That if we decide to deviate from God's plans and from the order that God has put in place, he won't stop us. If we decide to deviate from God's plans, he won't stop us. God will let us wander if we want to. Three times in chapter 1, Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. Reminds me of, of, of when I was younger. I had multiple brothers and sisters, and we were a, an integrated family. And so there were times where, where one or the other of the sides of the family, either being my mom's children or my stepdad's children, would get upset with how rules were functioning. And, and I, my dad had a very specific way of responding to that. And I remember the first time it came up with one of my, my siblings complaining, well, that's not fair. I, the rules here are stupid. I don't like this. And, and I, I'm going to go live with my mom. And I remember my dad said, okay, I'll help you pack. And he did. He went to their room, helped them pack their bags, took them out, set their bags on the edge of the porch, and they waited for their ride. Now, while God may not be as intentional about that as, as maybe my father was, the fact is that if we want to go, God is not going to stop us. If we want to go wander and do our own thing, we want to, we want to go out and, and try the waters of the world, God will give us over to that. We see that clearly in the words of Jesus in the gospel, do we not? Through the prodigal son. Prodigal son says, hey, dad, give me my stuff. I'm going to go do my thing. And the father's like, okay. 
We see that in the lost sheep, the lost sheep wandering off. And, and, and sure, the, the shepherd goes after it. But if we want to wander, God will let us go. God will give us over to our desires. God never gives up on us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But he will let us go do our own thing. And watch and wait and follow and hope for our return. Passage gives us, again, three times God gave them over. In verse 24, it says, God gave them over to their sinful, the sinful desires of their hearts. And here we get into the, the real of idolatry. That is about serving and seeking self. We see this oh so clearly, the, 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 what we see here happening in verse 24 and following. We see this oh so clearly in our society. And not just out there with them, but with us as well. The whole idea, ideology of follow your heart. God wants you to be happy. Just follow your heart and you can't go wrong. The, the Bible, not to mention my own personal observations and experience, would seem to indicate otherwise. Jeremiah 17.9 17, says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? The, your heart will lead you wrong. Your heart at its core is sinful. So following the desires of our heart, doing what is right in our own, look throughout the Bible and see how many times the disastrous calamities that happen in the world are the result of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone following their own hearts and going their own way. We lie to ourselves all the time. And what we want quite often fails to result in getting what we truly need and what's best for us or those around us. But we see here that there's the problem that God gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped created things rather than the creator. See the second God gave them over in verse 26, that God gave them over to shameful lust. And these two sets here between 24 and 27, God calls out all kinds of sexual immorality. He calls out fornication and homosexuality. I'm going to say this, and again unapologetically, but with humility and grace. Homosexuality is incompatible with the teaching of Scripture. As is fornication, us sleeping with people that we aren't married to, as is pornography, as is idolatry. It is a sin and a violation of God's created order. But Paul doesn't stop here. See, here's the thing. In our understanding of, of this text, we would love to stop here and we'd love to rail on the sins that we know they are committing out there. We, we, we would love that. And as a matter of fact, there was one commentary I read that was absolutely worthless to me for this morning because 90% of what they talked about was focusing on this issue. But Paul continues on. He doesn't stop by saying that this idolatry that, that is happening through, through sexual fornication or through homosexuality. He doesn't just talk about this degradation of the mind and the body through going and doing our own thing. He goes on, and it says in verse 28 that God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they, they do what they ought not to be done. And then Paul gives a list. And in my mind, as, as Paul is reading off this list, I can hear the Roman Christians going, yeah! I can hear the Juman, Jewish Christians backing it up. And, and, and Paul says, hey, they, God gave them over and, and they were given over to fornication and they, God allowed them to, to do these things and degrade their bodies with one another. And, and these Christians and these Jewish Christians are going, yeah! That's right, they're doing that! Paul says that, that God gave them over and allowed them to, to go and, and burn with passions that are, 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 are against the created order. And they burn in their hearts men for men and women for women. And, and, and that they received this punishment in themselves. And the, the Christians are going, yeah! Verse 29, they are filled with wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Yeah! 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Yeah! They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Yeah! They invent ways of doing evil. Yeah! Then you get to verse 30. They are disobedient to parents. Whoa. (laughs) Oh. Time out, Paul. We were flowing good there, buddy. You were, you were moving and we were with you and the amens were flowing and we were on top of this and we were going with you. Disobedience to parents. He's like, yeah. And not only that, they have no understanding. They have no fidelity, no faithfulness. They have no love and no mercy. And they deserve death for doing such things. Now, I want you to think about that list that I've given and all of those God gave them over. And if any of you can say to me in all confidence that you have not committed any of these things in this list, go ahead and raise your hand. And I'm going to sit down and you can come finish the message. Paul is taking shots at everyone. The church growth movement would tell us this is not a good strategy to keep people in your church. And people we love, as a matter of fact, my friend Pastor Mike and I were, we, we actually sent a letter to our former church last week because we, we, we heard a message where it was railing against the evils in the world and how terrible the world is and everyone was amening and everyone was going crazy as he called out the sins of the world and how terrible the world was. As they were even insolent and, and slinging mud and slander at the world. And I look at this list and I'm saying, how can you do that? Paul even says in verse 30 that they are gossips. They talk about others. They, they are slanderers. And that this is God-hating. God, Paul puts right in the middle of all these things. This, this is God-hating. It doesn't demonstrate the love of God in our lives. And isn't it interesting that as Paul brings this all to a crescendo, that he ends with the absence of love and the absence of mercy. What did Jesus say when he said, when he talked about judging? Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the same measure that you measure out, it will be measured back to you. We talked several months ago about the fact that that measure out is about justice and mercy. And which would you rather the scales tip towards? Justice, you getting what you deserve, or mercy, you getting the grace of God? And I would say that for each of us, we would rather receive God's grace and mercy, right? Then why don't we demonstrate that same grace for a sinful world? Then Paul goes a step further. Romans 2.1, he says, You, therefore... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. You who pass judgment do the same things. They are us. We are in the same boat. They are you. We are all of us without excuse. There is no excuse for you. People tell me that all the time, and I get to say it to you today. There is no excuse for you. There is no excuse for us. We are all of us sinners in need of a Savior. None of us deserves to be led into God's kingdom. None of us is righteous. None of us is worthy. We are all of us unworthy but invited all the same. Thus is the nature of God's great grace and mercy. We must be careful, as the statement goes, they that live in glass houses ought not throw stones. It really bothers me how quick we are in the church to call out their sin, but slow to acknowledge our own. We're more than willing to point out the inconsistencies of the lives of those outside these walls, the ways they are walking in God's wrath while trying to pull out and paint ourselves as being more righteous. But we're just like Paul. We're slaves to Jesus Christ. We're unworthy but invited all the same. 
We've sinned. We've failed. We are worthy of death just the same as they are. And, and, and further, as Paul will, will explain as we go on, why, why are we surprised that sinners be sinning? The world is going to world, folks. We are called to be countercultural. The kingdoms of this world are going to continue to rage and fight against one another. We are going to continue to see slander thrown. We are going to continue to, to, to see backbiting and hurting and wronging. And, and we're going to continue to see mercilessness and lovelessness in the world. We will continue to see God-hating. The problem is when we get drawn in to that exercise and we let it slip out of our own mouths. Or, or maybe I should be a little more spe- specific, off of our own fingers. We need to be careful the way that we are talking about others. We aren't called to be the judges, the juries, and the executioners. We are called to be conduits of the grace of God. We are called, as Jesus said, to go out into the world, into the highways and the byways, and call all who would come to the wedding feast to come. To invite everyone to come and enjoy and experience the grace of God. God, unworthy as they may be. We must be careful not to treat, treat the grace of God with contempt. Verse 4, it talks about that. Contempt is the feeling that something is beneath us, worthless or deserving of scorn. We show contempt for God's grace by failing to receive it or acting as if we don't need it. If we're good en- as if we're good enough on our own. But we also show contempt for the grace of God by failing to extend it to others. And this is the greater problem in our churches and has been for generations. That we, we, we seek to wall ourselves off and we seek to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we seek to protect his church from, from these outside influences and, and the, the mud that might come in from worldly people being a part of us. But the, the problem is as soon as we're let in, we've already messed it up. We see God as being too easy with who he lets in. So we create qualifications We make the list a little more discerning. Try to close the holes to make citizenship in his kingdom a little more clean and upright. But we don't get to adjust God's expectations for his good news and his gospel. Jesus is the key to the kingdom. He is the judge. Verse 16, it says this. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Not only did Jesus set the standard through his life and sacrifice, he paid for our pardon. He made the way for us to transfer our citizenship into his kingdom through his shed blood. And we will be judged not only by but through Jesus Through faith in Christ and his shed blood, our sins are canceled. I know we live in a cancel culture, and we we are so hard against that thing. But listen, this is one area where cancel culture is a good thing. Cancel all my sins. Tear all the monuments to all the things that I've done wrong down. Please, Lord Jesus, do it, and do it early and often. Jesus, in his grace, through his shed blood, has canceled our sins and taken the penalty for them upon himself. So when God looks us on, at us on judgment day, it's not how good we were or how hard we tried, even before or after Jesus, but that, that I fully submit myself and lay myself at the mercy of the court and, and understand that it is only through the saving grace of Jesus, not through any works that I've done, but through great, the grace of Christ alone that my sins are covered, that my deviations are made right. will also be judged through Christ that if we don't accept Christ and we don't throw ourselves in the mercy of the court and accept his grace, then our lives will be judged against the standard of his life. We will be judged through the lens of who Jesus was and how he functioned, the expectations of his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, friends, none of us meets the expectation. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a moment to remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. 
And I am so grateful for the men and women of our armed forces who sacrificed their lives for our freedom, the freedom to worship being among them. I am so grateful to have grown up in these United States of America. I am proud to be an American. But at the same time, I understand that my allegiance belongs first and foremost somewhere else. That I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. That one sacrifice stands above them all. That one sacrifice provides freedom not only for now, but for forevermore. That one sacrifice allows me to be a citizen of the eternal kingdom that transcends time and space. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and God made flesh. And without his sacrifice, we're all on the outside looking in. True and lasting salvation comes from placing our faith and pledging our allegiance to him. Confessing that Jesus is Lord, that there is no other name whereby men must be saved. That he has the name that is above all names, that it is through him and him alone that we are saved. May we pledge our allegiance to him. May our fidelity to him and the calling of his kingdom define us more than any other kingdom in this world. And may we seek to share his grace and invite all who would receive to become citizens of his eternal kingdom. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your love. I pray that you would continue to impress upon us our need for you, the greatness of your love, the lengths of your sac- that you've gone to, the sacrifice that you gave for us. And God, this morning, if there are any that need to put their trust in you, that need to pledge their allegiance to King Jesus, I pray that they would do it, that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. God, I pray that in even these moments that they would put their trust in you. And for those of us, Lord, that may have turned our attention elsewhere, gotten distracted by the kingdoms and callings of this world, I pray that we would once again look to you, our God, our creator, our savior, the sustainer of our lives. May we confess to you our failings. May we put our trust in you and you alone for our salvation. May we thank you for your goodness and grace this morning. In Jesus' name.